Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Well, it, it really is a joy and uh, uh, honor to be here with you this morning. Celine and I are just so happy that we finally are in Prague. <laughs> it's hard to believe. <laughs> it's been a couple-year journey to get us here, uh, and God's been faithful, and um, I'm very privileged to be able to share with you this morning. And uh, I want to talk about the subject of freedom, something that we've uh, sung about in a couple of our uh, worship songs this morning. And um, a few years ago, Selena and I had the, the opportunity to do a year of study with Rabbi Zacharias Ministries, uh, which is, uh, it was focused on how do, how do you answer the, uh, the tough questions of faith? How do you present the gospel in a convincing and, and uh, um, uh, attractive way? And one common question that you, by the way, there's notes on your, on your bulletin if you, uh, if you want them or want to follow along. But a common question that you run up against when it comes to deciding whether, to, whether or not to be a follower of Jesus is this question of, doesn't God just want to take away my freedom? Doesn't becoming a Christian just take away your freedom? That phrase that was part of the reading from John 8 the truth will set you free. It's probably, I would think, one of Jesus' best known and least attributed sayings. Everyone's heard of that phrase. Far fewer people know it was Jesus that said it. It turns up everywhere. Every time you turn on the news, uh, you know, we're talking about freedom. And this is a common phrase whenever you talk about that topic. Uh, it's in speeches, it's on t-shirts, you hear it in films. Uh, and actually researching this, I didn't know, it's, it's the most, one of the most common university mottos around the world. The irony with that is that for most people who repeat that phrase and are familiar with it, becoming a Christian, to them, means almost exactly the opposite of freedom. To a lot of people, becoming a Christian means submitting to a set of rules where you can no longer have fun. You have to become a boring person. With a dull, it's not true. With a dull social life. With a terrible dress sense. No. And you listen to boring music. <laughs> All you have to do is think of any time you see God or the devil pictured in popular culture. Whenever you have Satan pictured in popular culture, the devil's the one having all the fun. Yeah. The devil's the one with all the uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll. God, on the other hand, whenever he's pictured in popular culture, tends to be uh, the grumpy old killjoy in the sky, waiting, ready to smite anybody who might not just be boring enough. <laughs> so in the popular mind, Christianity is seen as a list of do-nots that restrict what a person can do, or a domestication of all the things that, that make life most exciting. And so the question you end up with is, if I'm going to become a Christian, doesn't that mean I'm giving away one of the things I hold most dear as a modern person? My freedom? This passage that we've read deals with this. Jesus 
uh, talks about this, and we're going to look at, at three sections as we go through this. The first question is, what is the truth? What is the truth that sets you, that sets you free? The second one is, how can a person find maximum freedom? And lastly, we'll look at what kind of freedom is offered in Jesus. So first of all, what is the truth that sets you free? Um, we're going to talk about freedom. We might as well quickly define what it is that we're talking about. One way to define freedom is the right and ability to do whatever you believe, most simply. And freedom is a universal value. Uh, not only do we assume it in almost everything we do and say, uh, but every human culture, every human society has valued freedom as an ultimate value. Uh, it's something that we can't get away from. Um, it's something that we hold as good in and of itself, not for any other reason. Freedom is always preferable over lack of freedom, over slavery. Jesus upheld the value of freedom. In fact, in Luke 4.18, Jesus gives kind of his mission statement, and it says this, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of slight sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus said one of the main reasons that he came was to bring freedom. But when you read the Gospels and you read about uh, Jesus' life and teachings, you realize that he virtually never takes a commonly understood human value and just leaves it fully intact. He always pushes it deeper to show that for everything we value, there's something much deeper, much truer in reality behind it. And in this passage, he absolutely challenges our concept of freedom, and he ends up offending uh, all of his audience's sensibilities, and as we're going to see, probably most of our sensibilities today. So, Jesus is speaking to the Jews who had believed in him. That's the way John puts it. The Jews who had believed in Jesus. But in what sense did they believe in him? Because if you read to the end of the chapter, it gets pretty violent pretty quickly. At the start of the chapter, it says uh, they believe in him. At the end of the passage, it says they pick up stones to kill him, to, to, to execute him. And so, as you read the rest of the passage, what you see is they accepted Jesus' teaching up until it rubbed against their own sense of identity and their own definitions of freedom. Why? Well, because Jesus had the gall to suggest that they might need setting free. Jesus had the audacity to suggest that they may be slaves in some way. And so they respond, well, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? In other words, we're already free, thank you very much. We don't need any setting free. They believed in Jesus' words. But Jesus goes on to show it's not enough to simply believe in his words. To really be his students means being committed to him personally. We like to quote, the truth will set you free. It's less often quoted, you will know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. It's even less often quoted, if you, if you abide in my words, then you'll be my disciples, then uh, you'll know the truth, and then it will set you free. It's a beautiful promise. But we too often forget it's a conditional promise. If you abide in my words, if you hold to my words, actually do them, abide in them, live in them, build your life around them, make them the foundation of your life, in other words, then, and only then, are you my disciple, Jesus says. And it makes perfect sense. Who is, this, who is the real student except the one that puts what the teacher says into practice? There's no other real kind of student. You can only learn from someone as long as you think they know more than you do. And so if you really think Jesus knows more than you do about how to live your life, and you're his student, then it means you put it into practice. To believe something is to live as if it were really true. And so what is Jesus saying? Only if you hear his words, believe them, and commit to him personally can you know the truth. Only in being a student of Jesus can you know the truth that sets you free. And so the question I began with is, what is the truth that sets you free? What are you knowing when you know that truth? Is it Jesus' teachings? Is it scripture? Is it a method or a step-by-step -step program of how to get free? It's not just his words. It's not just a way of life. It's not just an experience. It's knowing him. Jesus himself is the truth that sets us free. And a few chapters on in John 14, of course, Jesus says the very famous words, I am the truth. And so it's obedience to his words. Through that, we learn from him, we get to know him, and he is the truth that sets us free. Our preferred way is to get the effect without the discipline, <laughs> to get the, uh, the, the benefit without the commitment. But it's impossible because it's through his words that we access him. Without Jesus, the words are just words. We get to him through the words. And he goes on to explain why that's the case. So the next question in the, the next section is, how can a person enjoy maximum freedom? Um, researching this, it's, it's, uh, I didn't realize Jesus is speaking these words on the high day of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which was one of the three great feasts that ancient Israel celebrated and Jews today celebrate, which was all about celebrating the exodus or the, 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 um, the exodus out of Egypt, freedom from Egyptian slavery, God setting Israel free. And so they set up tents and they still do that today. It was as if Jesus was preaching on Israel's Independence Day. If you're American, you know, of course, tomorrow is uh, July 4th, American Independence Day. Uh, and part of the reason I thought this might be appropriate, but ideas of freedom were on everyone's mind, in other words. The Jews, even though they were descended, uh, sorry, the Jews, even though that they were under Roman rule, believed that they were, of all people, most free because they were the sons of Abraham. They were descended from God's chosen uh, prophet. They had the law. They, know, they knew how, how to obey God. They were free by right of who they were. 
in their sonship. But the reason they get so angry at Jesus is that he questions the safety of that identity. He doesn't deny that they're Abraham's descendants, but what he does do is remind them, hey, Abraham, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, the slave son, and Isaac, the free son. And it's a picture of our spiritual state. And we'll get back to that. But the question is, you're saying you're Abraham's son, but which son of Abraham are you? Our society, in, in some ways, benefits from Abraham's legacy, too. Uh, and if you ask your average European today, which, which part of the world is most free? Of, of, of all people, who is most free? Most people would probably say, well, a citizen of a democratic, uh, uh, pluralistic country, such as we're in. But Jesus asks, what does true freedom look like? How can we be most free? Is true freedom just about removing all the restrictions and doing whatever you want? Is that kind of, in other words, radical individualism, is that what brings maximum freedom? A lot of people think it would. But with a simple example, you can see that that's not what leads to maximum freedom. Uh, it can't lead to maximum freedom because no person is an island. We're all interconnected. Our freedoms overlap. So for instance, if you take that rule, you live by it, if you do whatever you want to do, and I do whatever I want to do, what happens when what I want to do conflicts with what you want to do? Or what if what I want to do involves you, but you don't want it? Whose want wins out? You very quickly end up back into strong over weak, the slave society again. Uh, so maybe I'm being a, a, bit, a bit harsh. Uh, we recognize that it's not as simple as that again. Come on. Uh, do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. As long as it doesn't impinge on anyone else's freedom. Maybe that's what leads to maximum freedom. What we're recognizing there is that there has to be a limit in place in order for freedom to flourish. And it sounds like a contradiction. In order for maximum freedom, there needs to be a boundary. There needs to be a limit. The reason is proper boundaries do not inhibit freedom, they create it. Um, I, I've, some of you know I do hip-hop music. I, I've loved music since I was a kid. I especially love jazz. My granddad was a big band trumpeter and I've always loved jazz. And I, uh, um, I love jazz because partly because it's so free. It's so expressive. It's probably also the reason why many of you hate jazz because it's <laughs> too free. <laughs> Too expressive. Um, but, you know, there's lots of different styles of jazz, but there's, there's a style called free jazz. Um, and uh, part of the reason uh, is because it's one of the freest musical forms, but how is that freedom created? Anyone who's ever tried to play the piano knows that it's not just, the freedom is not created just by sitting down at the piano and just running your fingers along the keys and playing whatever you want. It may sound like that to some of us, uh, but for most of us, that's going to sound terrible. The jazz pianist gets his freedom only through the rigorous discipline of learning scales, learning the techniques, internalizing the rules and the theory of music through repetition, through practice, through perseverance, usually over many years, uh, within certain boundaries, 
and learning to play with other people who have learned those same boundaries. And that's how, that's the discipline that creates the freedom. But it's also the proper discipline. It's not just practicing any made-up rules that you want. It's learning the rules that are fitting to the way that the instrument was designed to be played. You have to play according to how it was designed. So the question is, is the boundary of do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, is that the proper boundary for human life that creates maximum freedom, that lets you live jazz? <laughs> on one hand this is a very important kind of freedom this is the kind of freedom that's at the heart of something like human rights uh, paying a certain minimum respect to others basic entitlements uh, to protect other people's freedoms that's what uh, rights are all about um, that's what you would call a negative freedom or the, the absence of obstacles barriers or constraints but just a lack of obstacles doesn't create maximum freedom. It's not enough. You don't only need to be free of obstacles. You need the other side. You need positive freedom, which is defined, uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines it as the ability to act in such a way as to take control of your life and realize your purpose. That is positive freedom. The boundary of do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt others, that only deals with negative freedom, your, your external restrictions. But what about internal restrictions? What about the positive freedom that allows us to live out our purpose in life? How do you get that kind of freedom? Jesus is pointing out to the Jews, you may be free on the outside, but there's a completely different kind of internal slavery. Even if you're free externally, there's an internal kind of slavery. And Selena and I uh, are coming here from, from a ministry called Patel, as some of you know. I've grown up uh, working with, with recovering drug addicts. And so uh, this is a natural example for me to take, but there's some forms of behavior which don't fit that rule of do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Uh, you can engage in certain kinds of behavior that, at, that don't strictly involve anybody but yourself, but which lead towards a complete lack of freedom. For instance, when you begin, when a person begins taking drugs, uh, it starts off free. It feels like freedom. Wow, I can do whatever I want. The rules don't apply. Um, and you can take it or leave it. But the more and more you take, the less and less it gives back, the more and more you develop a habit and a need for that thing, a dependency, and now you can no longer resist. You have to have it, or you can't function. You're no longer free like you were in the first place. And what began only involving yourself now begins to involve everyone around you, because you begin uh, manipulating people and stealing from them. And, uh, pursuing a selfish addiction, but which destroys all the relationships around you. Sin is an addiction. It's an internal kind of slavery that every one of us is born into. It promises us the world by abusing the freedom that God intends for us, but it gradually gives less and less in return 
and ultimately crushes us under its weight. Freedom, used wrongly, leads to lack of freedom. Because true freedom doesn't only rely on removing external boundary, uh, 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 external restrictions, but it relies on us having character. The ability within ourselves to act according to our intended purpose. So how can we know what the proper boundaries are? The only way to know if something's being used well is if you know its purpose. For instance, if I've never seen a watch before and I pick this up and I want to know, is this, is this a well-made thing? I don't know what it is. And, and so I don't know its purpose and I go and try and use it as a hammer and I try and hammer a nail in and it falls to pieces, it cracks, and it's, uh, I'd say, this is a terrible hammer. This is absolutely useless. It's only because I don't know its purpose. If I know its purpose, I know that it's designed to tell the time, and I can judge whether it's being used well. To know, to find maximum freedom in our lives, we have to know what our intended purpose is. That's the only way we can know if we're living well. To be free, we have to know the purpose that we're created for. And this brings us to the last point here. God created, the Bible tells us God created the universe and declared, when he was done, he said, everything is very good. God didn't create anything bad. It's all good. So the essence of sin is taking good things that God created to bless us and using them in ways other than he intended, that, that, other than how he intended them to be used. It's not that sex is bad and chocolate's bad and money's bad. It's that sin uses those things. It makes them ultimate things. It uses them in ways other than what God knows is going to bring us maximum joy. To paraphrase uh, C.S. Lewis, he says, "These are." These things are good things, but when we make them ultimate things, when we look to them to satisfy our deepest needs, they become dumb idols, and they end up breaking our hearts because they can't deliver. They weren't designed to deliver that. The fault's not in the design. The fault is in how we're using it. God does not want to hold you back from freedom. God created us for freedom. But he wants to give us the kind of freedom that we need to be able to enjoy everything that he wants us to enjoy. He created everything good and to be used freely, but when we misuse God's creation, it leads to lack of freedom. It leads to addiction and slavery. That's how sin began. Sin began with the thought that God wants to make robots that obey and have no freedom of their own. This little lie that Satan planted in the human heart that said, God wants to hold you back from the good stuff. God's wanting to hold you back. So you better take things into your own hands and exercise your freedom. But actually what God's intention was, according to the Bible, is that we would be, we would be beings in his image. In other words, that human beings would bear God's character, God's stamp. And one of the most basic aspects of who God is, is that he is absolutely free. But he's also absolutely good. He has the power to do absolutely whatever he wants, but he's 
also absolutely good in whatever he does. And God wants to make us into that kind of person. God actually wants you, he wants to make you into the kind of person who can do whatever they want. But a person of such good character that whatever you do is ultimately what's best for you. He wants us uh, to have maximum flourishing, to change us from the inside out, that we would naturally want the things that are really best for us. That's what God's guidelines, that's what his commands are about. Not restricting our fun. And that is the lie God wants to take from you, not give to you. God wants to hold you back, not set you free. God's commands are about showing us the proper boundaries that lead to good character so that we can have ultimate joy and absolute freedom like God has. They're the proper boundaries that don't stifle us, but set us truly free. Just like the rules of music don't stifle the pianist, they set him free. God's law isn't a made, uh, is, it's not a set of made-up rules to kill your joy. He's not a killjoy. In fact, did you know God is the happiest person in existence? God is happy. How contrary is that to uh, any depiction in popular culture? God is happy. And he wants us to have the happiness that he has. In order for us to have that, he needs to change us into having the character that he has. That is the end goal of becoming a Christian, that we would be made into the image of his son. That's Romans 8.29. Um, This is why Jesus says if we follow his commands, we become his students, then we know the truth, then the truth sets us free. And free for what? For now we know. To enjoy the greatest possible gift in the universe, God himself. This is my, my favorite verse in the Bible, I think, John 17, 3. This is eternal life. In other words, this is true life. This is unfathomable, the the realest kind of life that there is. This is life to know God and and his son, Jesus Christ, to be sent. Because God is the only good thing that never comes to an end. He's the only one that can fulfill us eternally because he's the only eternal thing. He's the only eternally good thing. So anything else in that place will inevitably let us down. That's why God wants us to turn to him. Not because those things are bad, just because they can't, they can't fulfill us in the long run. Jesus doesn't only want us free from sin. He wants to make us free for abundant life. And that can only happen if he changes who we are, our identity needs to change. We need to become sons like Jesus for that kind of freedom to be possible. We need the character of Jesus stamped on us. When the Bible says that that when a a man or woman becomes a Christian, they can become a son of God, uh, it's not being sexist. It's actually talking about inheritance rights, as Jesus' audience would have understood, that the Son is the one who receives the inheritance from the Father. And so every person that comes to Jesus can become a son of God. In other words, 
someone who receives the inheritance, all of God's riches can be yours. Um, the Jews believed, Jesus' audience believed they were free because they had the law, they knew how to obey God properly. That's what made them sons of Abraham. But as, as we pointed out earlier, Abram, Abraham had two sons, Ishmael, the slave son, and Isaac, the free son. They were both sons, but one was born out of not trusting God, one was born out of sin and was a slave, and the other was born out of trusting God, out of the promise, and was free. And that's why Jesus says the slave does not remain in the house forever. Remember, uh, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now, this is a picture that Jesus is using of our spiritual state. Both sons may be in the house. They may be both descended from Abraham, but in two very different ways. A slave's position in the house is based on performance. It's always uh, very tentative. It's based on how well he performs his duties. But even if he performs all his duties absolutely perfectly, he will never be receiving the inheritance. He's not the son. This, the inheritance goes to the son. Um, when you're a son, on the other hand, you don't need to earn the inheritance. It's yours because of who you are, because you're the son of the, the father. And I think, I was, I was thinking about this, and I think we know this kind of instinctively. Have you ever been to somebody's house, maybe someone you really weren't impressed, or maybe they were very influential or uh, powerful, and you know, you, you're kind of walking on eggshells in their house, you don't know what you can touch, you don't, know, you don't want to look too hard at anything in case you might break the china or something, and you know, you're, 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 you're not free at all. And then all of a sudden, the, the son strolls in, and he owns the place. He picks up that same china plate you were worried to even look at, and he just goes and makes a piece of toast with it and whatever. And the son is absolutely free. Why? Because he knows the boundaries. His relationship with the father, he knows his identity, and he knows that the, this is all eventually his, so he better take care of it. Um, the kind of freedom that Jesus offers is absolutely sure. Why? Because he offers to make us sons. He offers to make, not, not just obedient slaves, but sons. Inheritance by right. The son's freedom isn't just not being a slave. It's not just a negative freedom. He's more free than just not being a slave. It's richness. All the inheritance is coming to him. He's absolutely in charge. He's the one that, uh, it's, it's not only freedom from oppression, but it's freedom for the inheritance that God wants to give, that he's going to give his sons. So Jesus is saying, you think you're free because you know the law and you know how to obey? That's nothing but a slave's freedom. The kind of freedom that I can give you is the freedom of a son that allows you to enjoy the meaning of life. It allows you to enjoy the greatest gift in the universe, to know God. The only good thing that never comes to an end. You'll probably hear me repeat that phrase a lot. Um, God himself. In other words, you can know, you can be in touch with the source of joy, the source of beauty, the source of love, 
the source of meaning, our longing for eternal love, that's what we're ultimately looking for. Our longing for eternal love can only be found in an eternal person, an eternal and good father. And so God is preparing us, he's preparing his children to enjoy a love that is eternal and never needs to run out. And if we know that, why settle for anything less? We think the common idea is that God finds, in general, he finds human desires a bit too strong. We just need to tone them down a bit and hold back and restrict ourselves. And, and uh, becoming a follower of Jesus, therefore, means setting your sights a little bit lower. You, you won't be able to enjoy all this stuff, but um, you know, you'll be uh, a, a, a nice person. C.S. Lewis corrected all that. In his sermon, uh, the, the Weight of Glory, he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The gospel offends our sensibilities. It tells us that we're sick, we're in need of healing. It tells us that we're enslaved and we need liberation. But it's not because God wants to kill our joy. It's because he wants to give us ultimate joy. It's out of his love for us. He wants to set us free from what we were created for. So being free isn't just being able to do whatever you want. It's being able to do what you were created for. Jesus is the only way to get that kind of freedom because he transforms who we are. He transforms our being. He transforms us from the inside out so that we would actually desire what is truly best for us. That's a miracle of the human heart, that we would actually desire God above anything else. And it's not instant, it's a lifelong process, but it's a road to the truest, deepest kind of freedom that's possible. And that's the freedom that can transform the world because it transforms our hearts.